above the snow-capped mountains of Hestelen Valley in central Norway is a mystery that has remained unresolved for the past four decades. Unexplained luminous shapes have flickered, danced, and hovered against the sky. Their haunting glow mystifies residents of the nearby village and draws serious scientific inquiry. Reports tell of shapes darting through the sky, dipping beneath the treetops, and behaving in ways that seem to show intelligent control. Researchers like Professor Erling Strand have spent decades researching the spectacle. These lights can be very strong. It can illuminate the ground beneath it. It can move around in the valley for a long period of time, up to two hours. One occasion, we did measure the speed on our radar, and the speed of this yellow light was 30,000 kilometers an hour. That is nearly 19,000 miles per hour. These lights have left more questions than answers in the wake of this strange phenomenon. Hestelen is a quiet village there are only about 150 residents living in the valley of this agricultural community. On December 8, 1981, residents Uge and Ruth Mary Moe, from the vantage of their kitchen window, found themselves captivated by what they described as a burning fireball hanging in the evening sky. Others in town began to report sightings. The lights would drift slowly through the valley, appearing to hover over roofs or floating just above the fields. Other times, the lights would dart just beneath the nearby mountaintops at unimaginable speeds. They were reported in a range of colors, white, yellow, red, blue, and green, and took a variety of shapes, like a football or an upside-down Christmas tree. Arlene Strand, a young electrical engineer with a master's degree from the University of Trondheim, found himself drawn to the stories coming out of Hestelen. He delved into every report, interview, and image he could find, determined to unravel the mystery. It was very many reports coming in. Based on the reports we got, at the most, it was 20 observations in a week. And if you know that the valley is only 10 miles long, 20 observations a week in such a small valley. That, that's huge. We got information from the press. Actually, the newspaper in the early 80s wrote a lot of stories from Hestal because there were so many sightings of strange lights going up there. So many people went up there to see it for themselves. I and some friends did also do that. That was back in 1982. Driven by curiosity, Arlene and his friends packed up and made the trip to Hestelen Valley. They tempered their expectations, accepting it was highly unlikely they would witness anything firsthand. But they were wrong. I remember the date very well, 25th of September, because I had my first sighting in Hestelen on the first tour 
but I didn't expect uh, such a bright light hovering above the ground, moving back and forth for more than one and a half hour. And that made a big impression on me. I was excited. So when you are a scientist, you are curious. And my first thinking, oh, what is this? When it was hovering around, sometimes it sent a spotlight up in the air. The group of us, we had split in three different locations up in the mountains, different mountains in Hestandal, and we communicated with the radio. The group was very close to it, closer than me. They had the opportunity to see it all the time. And they said it was also illuminating or putting spotlights on the ground also, not only up in the air, which I saw, but also on the ground. And it as it, if it was turning the spotlight on and then it turned off. So that was very exciting. After this experience, he was determined to uncover the truth. He began to interview residents and learned that this had been happening even longer than the press had reported. The first documented report is from 1967. I think there were 14, 15 years only. And uh, they was really frightened because uh, just on the other side of the lake from this cottage, they saw this bright light down below the horizon and it was moving and I was really frightened. They uh, actually decided they didn't dare to be in the cottage anymore. So in the middle of the night, they actually decided to walk back home, which was a distance of uh, close to, uh, I would say, 15, 16 kilometers. It seems to be reports from before that as well. When we have talked with the old people up there, they have told about what they've seen when they was kids. So we have some few stories from the old people telling about some of the sightings. However, it hasn't been so much as it was when it started in 81. But uh, it seems, based on the stories uh, the old people told us, and also there is a local history book covering this place, which write something about a light. Uh, I think it's one or two stories in the local history books, so it's not much. But uh, I think we have to take into account to be written about in uh, local history books, then it must have been a great sighting. Back home, Arling couldn't escape the vivid memory of his otherworldly encounter. It fueled a fire in him that demanded further exploration. We all went back home after this tour to Heston, weekend tour. Everyone was discussing why doesn't that university do some research or why doesn't that research facility do anything? Everyone, many people talked about that. I and some friends, we gathered at the cottage in June 83. We gathered and discussed what could be done with this 
we discussed also the fact that no one did do anything. No research facility did do anything. So then we decided, well, we let's try ourselves. We started Project Heston. A deep conviction that some unknown force, perhaps a hidden branch of physics, was responsible for the Hestelin lights consumed him. On June 3rd, 1983, he gathered four others who shared his passion, forming Project Hestelin. Their mission? To pierce the veil of mystery. To understand the enigmatic lights that danced across the sky. Project Hestelin was designed to be a collaborative effort. It rested on two pillars, a dedicated working committee responsible for the day-to-day operations and data collection, and a prestigious advisory board. This board, composed of leading scientific minds, would serve to consult on theories and lend their expertise to guide the project's direction. Among the distinguished members of the advisory board was Professor J. Allen Hynek, a renowned astronomer and a legend in the field of UFO research. His work on Project Blue Book had cemented his reputation as a rigorous investigator. The Close Encounters classification system he developed remains the standard for categorizing UFO sightings. Hynek's presence added gravitas to the project. He saw in the Hestelin Lights a unique opportunity to unlock the mysteries of unexplained aerial phenomena. Well, I'm impressed by two things. One is the dedication of the people here that are doing this tremendously fine work. And I'm impressed with Hestalin itself because Hestalin is really a UFO laboratory. It's a place where things are happening and where things can be studied. And I will look forward very much to hearing everything that happens here. And I want you to keep in close touch with me in the States. I would say, without fear of of, uh, exaggeration, that Hestalin has had the best equipment and the best period of operation and observation of the UFO phenomenon in any place in the world. No, there's nothing that compares Heston, and this is by far the best, and that's why I came here. Whether it is something paranormal or from out of space, or whether it is a natural phenomenon, nonetheless, whatever it turns out to be, it's terribly important. The field work officially kicked off on January 21st, 1984. Armed with an arsenal of scientific instruments, they split into three groups. Two field troops in nearby villages and the headquarters in a caravan which served as the project's scientific nerve center. Each with a critical role to play. They carried a wide range of equipment to test a myriad of hypotheses. Cameras that allowed for recording the fleeting luminescence of the lights. Seismographs to measure tremors in the ground that might be linked to the origins. Radar to track the speed and distance of the lights traveled. A magnetometer to scan for any hidden magnetic fields. And spectrum analyzers to determine what source was causing this anomaly. Project Hestalin recorded 53 observable lights. At its height, they were experiencing 20 to 30 sightings a week. We have decided to split them in four different types. And the first one, which are most common, that is flashes of light, normally blue or white. Time duration is mostly less than a second. So due to the short duration, it's very hard to see it. We become aware of those 
due to the fact that we have seen some lights on pictures we have taken. We didn't see any light when we took the picture, but we could see it on the picture afterwards. The type 2, though, is the more common, and that's the one we did record the first years, and that's more yellow lights mostly. They can be all types of sizes. Biggest one is uh, 10 meters in diameter. And these lights, as I mentioned, can be very strong. It can illuminate the ground beneath it and can move around in the valley for a long period of time. Type 3, that consists of several lights which seems to be connected in one way or the other. Because when all these different types of light move, they move all together. It seems to be on something. So when, when this phenomena is moving, all the lights are moving together. This has also been seen even when it's not completely dark outside. Those who have seen that, they say, well, there's a black object connecting these lights. The fourth type, which are not so common, is more seldom, but uh, I think we have to consider them and take them into account when we study them, is more daylight sightings. And of course, these sightings has made the biggest impression. Tarja Tofnes a filmmaker who created a documentary on the Hestelin phenomenon called The Portal, recounted stories he heard from locals while filming. This special one lady, she said, I've been ridiculed, uh, so I just want to say it as it is because I believe that this is very valuable information, which actually is of concern to everyone. So she told us about not only the lights, but she told us that like one night she was traveling uh, in her car from the local village up to this valley, and suddenly something that looked like a big hat suddenly appeared right over her car. It was dark, of course, it was a winter night, and it lit up the whole area and her car, and she said it was even stronger than headlights from my car. I could see the road, like, very long distance in front of me, and I could see the woods around me and everything. So she said, and this happened several times, that these lights lit up the whole valley. And she also said that she was, one occasion, she was sitting and waiting for her husband who was collecting some timber or something. And she was having a smoke sitting down close to a creek. And then suddenly she says, a big object that looked like a 40 meter long object with light in each end suddenly appeared drifting down the valley. And it, it was brown and it looked like a very big piece of bread, she said. She was absolutely shocked. And there was this other guy who said that, he said it looked like a big airliner, but with no wings and no windows. As I said earlier, it was hovering just above the treetops, very slowly, no sound, no uh, vibration, no nothing. And he had recorded this 46 times. Arlene and Project Hestalen wrapped their first research trip on February 27th. They returned home with a treasure trove of data. As they sifted through the electromagnetic and radio signals, a correlation became evident. We have had an instrument which measured the electromagnetic radiation in a very low frequency. And the reason why we had a focus on that one 
is based on this waving movement which could be due to very low frequency radiation. You can listen to the sound from this electromagnetic radiation if you have a proper device which transforms the electromagnetic signals to sound. And we have found that this sound changes. You can hear when this phenomena is coming. It seems that there is some kind of connection to very low frequency uh, radiation as well. Not only were they able to see the lights with their eyes, they also appeared on radar as physical objects. Whatever these lights were, at times they appeared to be under intelligent control. Tare Tofnis recounted an eerie experience Arlene and others had with the lights. So he pointed at this thing with the laser pointer and tapped on the uh, button so it gave um, a frequency of laser shots towards this uh, light. And he said later in the evening when they were standing outside discussing things, then suddenly totally similar laser light came from the sky and pointed at the ground right in front of their feet with the same frequency that they had been shooting at this light. These first-hand encounters with the lights offered an intriguing possibility. The lights could contain some form of intelligence. This was enough to convince Arling he had found his life's work. Without hesitation, he returned to Hestalen a second time, hoping to capture more data. When we had our second fieldwork in 1985, we got only one good observation during a period of four weeks. The second field work in 85 didn't give so much result on the one great view, so we thought it was gone. While disappointed with the results of the second trip, Arlene was committed. The evidence collected raised too many unresolved questions to ignore. In 1993, Project Hestalen presented their findings to the people of the valley. Arlene was concerned that the research would not be able to continue as the sighting seemed to have quieted down greatly. But after his presentation, a number of residents approached Arlene to let him know this wasn't the case. I was surprised because I hadn't, hadn't heard anything. And I commented that, oh, I haven't heard anything. And the fellow said, well, we don't tell it anymore because we were so ridiculed uh, the first time. And we don't want that to happen again. They have been accused of uh, different things like, uh, uh, well, I don't know what it, what you call it in English, but it happens some places in very remote places that people from the same family have children with each other, you know. <laughs> and that creates some strange characters from time to time. So they had been accused by that, which of course was not the case. And they had also been accused that it was their uh, home brew that was uh, causing these uh, very special sightings. And uh, they said that every time they went down into the local village to do shopping, they felt that people were talking behind their backs. So they were very uncomfortable about the whole thing. But still, there were some who uh, were open. In my impression, these people were very, very truthful. Uh, I had no, absolutely no reason to believe that this was fantasy or uh, anything like that. They had no wish uh, whatsoever to uh, attract attention. Hungry for more information, Project Hestalen organized a symposium in 1994 
titled The First International Conference on the Unidentified Atmospheric Light Phenomena in Hestalin. Leading scientists from eight different countries came to review and contribute to the research. One scientist who accepted the offer was Dr. Massimo Teodorani. Dr. Teodorani was a northern Italian physicist working with the Medicina Radio Astronomical Station with a PhD in stellar physics. I didn't want to show my colleague that I'm studying UFOs, these things, you know, because there was a stigma. Anyway, Erling invited me at a very prominent symposium, which was uh, kept in 1994 in and it collected a lot of scientists. It was uh, uh, about bull lightning, okay? So, and there were also two, two Nobel candidate physicists, so it was very important. That was the first time I met Erling. Having spent much time researching the explosive stellar phenomena, from supernova to eruptive protostars, as well as being involved in the National SETI program, Dr. Teodorani was interested in what was happening in this remote village. After reviewing the evidence, he believed the lights could possibly hold the key to a major breakthrough in physics. How was it possible these lights seemed to manifest from thin air, hold their form, and then vanish just as seamlessly? The biggest challenge is the energy factor to try to understand how such a big amount of energy can be self-contained for so long time. That's the most important of all, for two reasons. The first reason is that we can reproduce in a lab, and the second reason is that if they come from the quantum vacuum, then we would do miracles, literally. The energy factor is the most challenging part, the physics factor. Not only that, but also if it were propulsion mechanism from extraterrestrials, we could deduce from the way in which the physical parameters vary in, with time, we could deduce what is the propulsion mechanism. And so that is also physics, and it's another challenge that's worth doing. Massimo and Arling would form a close friendship forged through their joint research, which continues to this day in Project Hestalin. I know Massimo Teodorani very well because he's been in Hestalin doing research for many times and was the man who told about it to his research fellows in Italy. He has been uh, the key person in doing research uh, of the Italian people up here for several times. And now we have continued, we have a good relation. I follow his work, he's very clever, and I'm very glad that he is now a part of this new Project Hestal, this nonprofit organization. He is the head of the research part of that. To continue their research, Project Hestalin would need to overcome a large obstacle they needed a way to monitor the valley around the clock while consistently collecting data even when their scientists were not present. They devised a way to survey the landscape 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. To achieve this, they installed a weatherproof container, later nicknamed the Blue Box, due to the color of the casing, packed with instruments to monitor the area year-round. 
This included a video camera and a magnetometer. When an object was detected, the camera records and sends a photo over the internet to the researchers. Over a period of 22 months, 42 unexplained photos of the phenomenon were captured. Ostfold University, where Strand was an assistant professor of information technology, funded the construction of the Blue Box. It was set in operation in 1998. I used my students to build it. We had cameras connected to a computer, which analyzed the pictures from the camera. If there is any interesting, it stored the picture and also a short video uh, sequence of that uh, sighting. That's the main instrument, you can call it, in the blue box. During a year, I have uh, made up to a little bit more than 100. This camera and the video recording has been captured. We have also had some other instruments. We have had an instrument which measure the electromagnetic radiation in a very low frequency, very low frequency radiation. You can hear when this phenomena is coming. So it uh, seems that there is some kind of connection to very low frequency uh, radiation as well. We have also had um, weather station running. We wanted to find out if there is any connection with, for instance, humidity. A second research station was later built with the aim of getting students excited in the sciences by studying the extraordinary. It started to be, bring young students up there running small expeditions, which we called science camp. These uh, students got a very prominent phenomenon, which was practically a fully illuminated triangular uh, light object, uh, which was literally sucking a light ball inside. Medicina Radio Astronomical Station, which Dr. Teodorani worked with, also helped to install a low-frequency radio wave analyzing system to help collect and process further data. In the year 2000, we decided to make a first mission of exploration where my colleagues, electronic engineers, gave a significant contribution installing very powerful antennas, working in microwave range and above all in the VLF range, very long wavelength which was very precious. Some have explained the Hestelin lights as ball lightning, itself a mysterious occurrence. Okay, ball lightning is just a light ball, natural phenomenon, clearly of which we don't know much so far. The difference between ball lightning and the Hestelin lights is that we can say that the Hestelin lights are at least 10 times, sometimes 50 times bigger than ball lightning. And the other difference between ball lightning is that they can last much more. Uh, as a ball lightning can last only 30 seconds maximum, uh, one minute. In the case of Esdalen lights, they can last uh, uh, up to one hour sometimes while uh, they are turning off and turning on because they tend to pulsate uh, very often. Beyond the superficial discrepancies between ball lightning and the Hestelin lights, Spectral analysis and radar signals interact with the Hestelin lights as if they were physical objects. When you study the signals from the radar, it's very 
strong feedback from the antenna as strong as you can expect to get from a solid object but sometimes it captured something which we didn't see with our eyes and this was very very strange researchers studied the surrounding areas in the Hestelen Valley seeing whether surrounding geological composition of the land could somehow be producing the lights so there has been geophysicists from France and from Greek who has actually walked around taking measurements and they found some interesting spots. They have said that they found some places or some down in the ground which conduct electricity very good. And they have also some places with uh, very high local magnetical activity. But how this can make all these lights, that's still a mystery. One thing is clear. They represent some form of energy. Energy can be neither created nor destroyed. It must be converted from one form to another. But many times, the Hestalen lights appear from nothing, raising an exciting possibility. There is the theory of uh, zero-point energy, namely the extraction, spontaneous extraction of energy from the quantum vacuum. After all, our universe was a very little particle, atom-like particle, that was born from the vacuum. I, one day I was walking near the river with my colleague, uh, mathematical physicist, uh, uh, Dr. Arrigo Amadori, and he told, well, maybe uh, ball lightnings are just failed universes. Uh, so they tried to become a universe, but they didn't succeed. And, uh, and so sometimes we see this, because quantum void with a virtual particle is trying all the time to create a universe. Only a few are successful, like our universe. If nature is spontaneously able to produce energy in that way, we don't know how. If we understand how, then that would be the key for us to extract energy from the vacuum. In that case, we would have a very free, really free energy, like Nikola Tesla was hoping to, to do, and this would revolutionize our life, uh, our propulsion system to other stars, okay? To do absolutely many things. So it's extremely important. Another theory uh, is of course plasma. When you have a plasma, you normally have a very high temperature as well. And how is it possible to get such a high temperature in a Norwegian valley? maybe also in the wintertime. But they talk about uh, what they call a cold plasma, plasma type, which could occur uh, with not such a high temperature. In 2007, a group of German and uh, Russian scientists published a, a prominent article, technical article of physics, where they demonstrated that plasmas in particular conditions uh, when they interact with dust, namely they call it a dusty plasma, they start to behave 
like the DNA, the biological DNA, like a life form. And they also reproduce uh, like the DNA. So they started to think, to hypothesize that uh, the phenomenon of life can happen not only in uh, carbon life forms or possibly silicon life form, but maybe also in plasmas. Well, I have been reading other articles and then I have put the, the things together. I am thinking about also a theory about plasmas by a physicist, a quantum physicist David Bohm. It was his PhD thesis and he demonstrated that the plasmas sometimes behave like a whole, only one thing. Not many particles separated, but only one thing, one orchestra of particles. What other uh, mechanism is happening similar to that? Well, you go in the brain. When you think that the theory by Nobel uh, physicist Roger Penrose and Stuart Ameroff, who is a neurophysiologist, they made a model about consciousness in the brain, hypothesizing that consciousness moments are due to the fact that there are some particles inside the neurons called microtubules, which are entangled together in, with the mechanism of quantum entanglement. Now back to the plasma. My hypothesis is this. What happens if the same thing that is happening with the microtubules in the brain happens in the particles of the plasma. Because at that point, I would suppose plasmas are not only life form, but at some moment they could become conscious. So, you see, I, I have many interests and I try to collect all together and see how the hypotheses come out and what I can prove with the data. Something like us, conscious, capable to realize what it has around, okay? It's something like our own brain. So I don't mean consciousness in the spiritual sense, no. I don't mean that. Uh, I mean something that activates the mind, okay? Uh, even the rational part of the mind or in intuitive part of the mind. So this is very exotic uh, speculation, of course, of which I have no proof. But I have um, a plan also for proving or disproving this using a high-speed camera. If we use 5,000 frames per second, we can see if there is a fast variation. If encoded in the fast variation of the light, there is some message, there is some form of intelligence. Consciousness is what it's all about. We live actually in a very, very creative universe. Some people say we are living in a, in a cr very creative mind. Whose mind it is, I, I won't uh, speculate in that. But it's obvious that the universe is actually full of life everywhere. We just haven't come far enough in our technological and spiritual development to, uh, to understand what we are actually a part of. The nature of reality is much more spectacular than we have ever imagined. Unfortunately, 20 years after the installation of the Blue Boxes, they've fallen into disrepair. Lack of funding and on-site support have made it difficult for the team to continue their data gathering efforts. It seemed as if Project Hestalon was doomed to sunset with no conclusive answers. Until summer 2023, when Strand and Tio Durrani resurrected Project Hestalon by raising funds to install new systems, which allow more in-depth readings of the area. They created a website at hestalon.org, 
as well as a Discord server, where they post regular updates and hold lectures for a global community fascinated by the lights. We uh, decided to make Project Teston work again, and we have made it as a non-profit organization. So now we are in the process of getting the funding necessary to get the proper instruments. Then we can go to the next step. Uh, drones now, as you know, are very sophisticated. Uh, they, they have uh, high-resolution uh, cameras. It can fly over and take images uh, all the time of the phenomenon in a very, at very close range. We are discussing these different kind of instruments we want to put in operation. Today, the research continues a data-driven effort to unravel the mysteries, not only of Hestelen Valley, but of the universe. Whoever decides uh, to study this kind of phenomena uh, must have two qualities. Rigor. It means uh, be very accurate experimentally, be mathematical. It's not stories here, it's not ufological story, it's just physics. And the other one, be open-minded enough that your brain doesn't fall from the skull, okay? So to be open-minded in a healthy way, okay? So a healthy skepticism is very important in this research. I can say that the more data we get, it has been more mysterious than you can imagine. For instance, uh, I mentioned the heat based on the picture, and no one has ever felt the heat. That's, uh, that's one thing. And if it's invisible, in a way, when your radar sees it, and we cannot see anything, I want to tell one small thing, which could be really big, because if you think of the power, uh, if you think of the light, which can last for minutes or even hours and eliminate the ground beneath it, there must be some kind of power. And where does this power come from? If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app. It helps get this content in front of more listeners, which means we can produce more episodes more often. Visit our website at www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Tarara. It's written and produced by RJ Blake and Ray Tarara. Theme music by Tara Monk. A special thanks to Arlene Strand, Massimo Teodorani, and Tarje Tofnes for sharing your knowledge and experiences with us.